sound is. Her many voices, her many voices, her many voices, her many voices. Welcome, welcome everyone to another session of um, Her Many Voices Lunch and Learn. And today we have both. Lisa Wimberger, our guest and founder of Her Many Voices, Alicia Fall. Welcome to you both. Yeah, great to be here. Thanks, Myrna. Lisa, it is so good to see you. You too. So many, so many years. We go back, Myrna, we go back, what, Lisa, 20, um, 20 years now. 2004, the end of 2004. Okay. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah, Lisa wow. and I we music together. She was my my percussionist for uh, I don't know close to ten years. I yeah. see the um, fantastic trap set there. <laughs> <laughs> she and her husband are amazing per, uh, drummers, percussionists. So it was a serendipitous people. party we were at. We were at a holiday party. Oh, that's and right. And you were playing guitar, and at the end you said, "I need a conga player." And then my friend said, my friend said, she's one. And that was it. That was it. Really wonderful. That was it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So thank you for coming on the show. You know, it's been so years ago, Myrna, we had, um, we started a program. It was called the Refugee Ambassador Program. And Lisa did these trainings with, we picked 11 women. They were handpicked, um, international. And they were focused within their own communities on um, trauma and PTSD and just the everyday issues that folks go, go through, particularly those within um, people of color communities. And so Lisa did a training and some of them, they, they went through a couple of weekends worth of training. And then some of them went through the entire year of training um, to get their certification for neurosculpting. And, um, and then they were able to go out back into their communities and take what they, they learned within uh, Lisa's trainings and go back into their communities and work with them. But it's been a while. It's definitely been way too long. And yeah. I thought all that's going on in the world today, we certainly are in this place where we need to get back and get grounded and recognize mm -hmm. the abilities that we have within ourselves to deal with all of the traumas that we're dealing with the depressions that people are going through. You know, it goes beyond the span of this two-year pandemic. It definitely goes a lot further than that. There's yeah. all sorts of layers that um, humanity is going through at this point. So I thought this is perfect timing. Let's bring Lisa back in here. Let's do uh, do a lunch and learn. And yeah. so Liz, thank you. Thank you for saying yes to this. Yeah. I know that you are quite busy at this point. It's okay. I'm always a yes to you. I'm always a yes to her many voices. And just a quick update. One of those uh, people who was in that original program is still a certified facilitator. And she has been adapting programs for various reservations, the Crow Reservation. And mm. she has been actively helping women uh, find their voice. And, it's, and it goes back to that very first program that you and I did together. That's wonderful. That's, that's great to hear. It does my heart good because yes. you don't know. I mean, sometimes you yeah. just are right. People go through this period and then they go off and, you know, you hope for the best and you mm -hmm. don't know whether they're going to use the tools that they were. They it's were still given. making ripples, still making good. ripples. Good. All right. Well, that's amazing. I don't want to, I don't want to hog up your time because I'll run my mouth. Myrna, <laughs> it's all yours. Lise, if at the end of this, if you can hang out for a couple of minutes, let's talk. Yes, I can and I will. All right, ladies. Okay. Thank you, Alicia. Thank you so much. Lisa, I'm so excited about this conversation. It's yeah. so important to think about the brain and our minds. It's like really kind of boiling down to the most essential element of what's important in life, right? Amen. <laughs> Amen to that. I certainly know it's your life work. Please introduce yourself um, around your career. And also, I'd love to hear how you personally got involved in this kind of work. Yeah. So um, 
I run the Neurosculpting Institute. It's a modality that I created. Um, it's a meditation slash neuroplasticity training modality designed for everybody, but but very specifically, it supports people in stress and trauma to kind of take agency over their nervous system and to stop habituating to stress patterns, which can snowball and just overtake our lives. So it's very, it's an empowerment process for people to gain access to their nervous system and, and start directing, self-directing um, the way they want to show up in life. Everything from stress and PTSD all the way to, you know, the self-help enthusiast, the person just really interested in self-growth, all the way to people with chronic illness. Um, and how I got involved in it was that I am a trauma survivor which I find that a lot of people who overcome their trauma go on to, to share how they did that. And that's what I did. I had um, a seizure disorder that came from a traumatic incident when I was young and compounded over the years. And my seizures were life-threatening. And uh, I was ending up in the ER and I was flatlining and I was you know, going into bradycardia, which is where your heart rate drops very quickly. And then eventually my heart would stop. And, uh, and it was getting harder and harder to recover from these episodes. And How the long last, were you when that was um, happening? It started when I was 15. And I overcame the disorder in 2007. So 30 years, 30 years of having these seizures. Oh um, my yeah. And not really knowing what or why, knowing I was not epileptic. I didn't have an epilepsy diagnosis. I had brain scans. I had heart scans. Everything came back normal. And then I had a doctor who I just serendipitously happened to have a seizure in his office during an exam. And when I woke up, uh, he was shaking and he had a needle of atropine, which was going, he was going to put it into my heart, like that Pulp Fiction scene. And he was going to resuscitate me. And um, I was very confused and he was shaken. And that's where I got my diagnosis. That's where I first learned that everything I had been experiencing in these, you know, up to that point had been these seizures because I would wake up on the floor in a puddle of what was a combination of sweat and urine and have no idea what happened to me. Oh well, goodness. he finally, he finally gave it a name and he said, you, you had a seizure and you flatlined and we were about to resuscitate you. And that's when we discovered, you know, what was happening. I wasn't epileptic. It was my vagus nerve, which is a cranial nerve that is in charge of your, one of your stress responses. And it, it, it governs your heart and your lungs and your liver and your gut and all of the organs, but it predominantly affects your heart rate variability and your breathing. And when it's not happy, it's going to move into supreme protection phase and that will decelerate your heart to something very low so you cannot maintain conscious functioning or it will stop your heart completely, which is the worst case scenario. And that's what was happening with me. What is that diagnosis? What's it called? The diagnosis? Vasovagal syncope, which is a very mm -hmm. fancy way to say fainting spells due to your vagus nerve, but there's a spectrum. And that spectrum in its extreme is the play dead option. It's the self-protective play dead option mm -hmm. that mammals have. Humans have it too. It's not sustainable because when you don't have enough oxygen to the brain as a mammal with a large brain, you're in big trouble. A mammal with a small brain, like a, like, you know, a, a bird, a squirrel, they, they can sustain the play dead option. That's why it's, you know, play possum. They can sustain it. It's protected. Wow. Large mammals, not so good. Um, and so I really just had to understand what was going on with my nervous system. I studied uh, all sorts of different courses in neuroscience to get a handle on me. Had um, zero uh, 
zero intention to share this with anybody or make a business or create an institute. I was simply, I just needed to save my life because at the time I, you know, that they were their worst, I was a single mother and I feared that I would leave my daughter without a mother. And I could not stomach that, you know, up to that point, it was just me and it was no, it was annoying, but so what? Now I had a kid, so I had to figure this out. And so I created a neuroplasticity protocol based on what I was learning. And that protocol enabled me to hack in. I know the word hack is a little harsh, but to influence my nervous system patterning, unwind the old habituated patterns, the old pattern of seizure response to stress and orient to a new pattern that I could practice enough where it would become habitual and that would be my new norm. And that happened. It, it actually happened. I, I created this protocol. It worked on me. And, um, and at that point, I thought, I just got a second lease on life. And now I have to consecrate myself to this modality. And so I did. And I quit my job and started sharing it with the world. And that was around the time that Alicia and I were just really getting going in our friendship and our musicianship and um and that's how it all started there's a there's a i'd love for you to connect one little dot which is um how how did you really find the solution and know that it was yours was it really your own research into yes, the, yes. the brain and yeah. you ended up finding that the key and then you created your own program with neurosculpting around that key yes so um i was a meditator uh, meditation was not helpful for a vasovagal seizure disorder. Just, it's just not. Um, uh, you have to get active and embodied and somewhat aroused to overcome a, a, a freeze disorder, not calm down. So mm. traditional meditation was actually antithetical to my healing um, when it comes to freeze and dissociation, which was what I was doing. Um, what I learned through neuroscience were the principles of neuroplasticity. And so what I did was I looked at my meditation practice and I said, my heart of hearts knows meditation can heal me, but something's wrong with the process. Something's not applying to my condition. And so I used the principles of neuroplastic learning in the brain. And I looked at meditation and I found a whole bunch of steps missing. Pieces of meditation process missing that could actually activate the learning parts of the brain and activate just enough arousal and not too much calm so that my brain would be ripe for learning. And then because I was learning the principles of learning, I was then able to create a bunch of steps where now that I had my brain listening and compliant, I could teach it very efficiently, quickly, powerfully. I didn't have time to waste. I didn't have 10 hours to go to the mountaintop. I had no time and I had to get in there pragmatically, efficiently, and potently. And so I created steps of a meditation process that I had never learned from anyone else. I still haven't experienced these steps in any other meditation form. I, I created them, I put them together, I sequenced them, I played with them, I rearranged them. And when I found a sequencing that felt right, I practiced it for about eight months. And then when uh, that's, that wave of seizure actually came after about eight months of me practicing my protocol, um, I was able to interrupt and stop the seizure by activating the rehearsal script I had been practicing for eight months. And so at that point I knew I entrained this. This is my new default. And so, no, I did not learn those five steps anywhere else. Um, yeah. That's, that's really incredible, Lisa. And the fact that, um, you know, I've, I've known of your work for a long time. And I, I think initially it was actually because of that ambassador program, I became aware of you back in the day, but, but I, this is so incredible to think that there's a, there's, you know, lots of people meditate, of course, right? But for there to be a piece that's missing that could literally change their life, 
right? That, that could literally help people understand that that if they also include your steps, they can change the way their brain works, right? With the neuroplasticity. I mean, I know the concept One, of neuroplasticity, right? 100%. Yeah, and that's here, here, really fantastic and, and, and sort of a light bulb, you know? Yeah, and, you know, here's what I want to say about meditation. It's amazing. I love it. Yes, it's it was my lifeline for decades. There is nothing wrong with meditation. I'm trained in TM. I'm trained in Ascension. I'm trained in a bunch of different forms of meditation, and they're amazing. And maybe this is user error, right? This is not a statement to all of you listening about your meditation practice. This is me and mine. Um, meditation took me to level one of being able to interrupt and calm down from agitation. That is not neuroplasticity. That's completely different. That's a calming intervention. In order to change your habituated patterns, you have to understand neuroplasticity because that's how you created them. And if you don't understand neuroplasticity, which is different from meditation, then you are only at an intervention level. And that intervention level can absolutely get you out of the hardest times of your life, but it will continue to remain an intervention. And so with, with neuroplasticity, and not just neurosculpting, but other forms of neuroplasticity training out there, you can get underneath and rework the trigger so you no longer need the intervention. And so there's a profound difference between neuroplasticity and trainment practices and traditional no thought, let it go, relaxation, meditation, and mindfulness. Yeah. They're, they're not way, the same animal. In a way, that's sort of just entry level step one to, I mean, I think people just sort of think in general of meditation as a way to get inner peace and contentment, like this, this place, which is important as well, as you've said. Critical. Um, and I absolutely love Michael Singer's work, you know, The Untethered Soul. And he talks about how the voice in your head is, is actually, um, you're, it's not you, right? You're the one listening to the voice in your head. And um, oh, I think I I'm, trans I'm transitioning a little bit into the whole consciousness conversation, which is totally relevant here, which is that you know, the more we are conscious and aware and not driven by our unconscious, right, the healthier we are, the better our behaviors and our own thoughts and our self-talk, all of it. So we're getting to this point. Um, what your work does, it helps people become more conscious in general. And I think a lot of people are like, I don't really know what that means to become more conscious. You know, it's such an esoteric uh, thought, Um but that's really what it means is to spend more minutes of your day, let's say, um, behaving and speaking from the conscious level instead of the unconscious where our where our unhealed wounds and our, our past experiences are actually ruling our behavior and our thoughts. And your work helps to to change that. Um, so so what I'm hearing you say, and I want to hear more about it, right, is that your work takes you so far beyond this getting to an inner peace place that you also are able to heal those things that are living in your unconscious that if we don't heal them, continue to drive our lives in unhealthy ways forever, <laughs> right? Absolutely. Absolutely. So, you know, most of our behavior is not driven at the the conscious level. I'll also replace the word conscious sometimes with self-directed. Our behaviors, as much as our mental mind wants to believe we're choosing them, um, they are usually expressions of habituated patterns, which are beneath intention level. They're at the, I did that a million times level. And so, um, when we're behaving in the world around us, we're often not behaving in the world from a present state. We are behaving presently from rehearsed patterns that we've habituated to, which is, which is different from being really present. And you can calm down all you want in the present moment, but unless you go in with the right tool to discharge the strength 
of that habituated neural programming, which fires electrically before conscious thought. It's our impulse for behavior in studies is measurably faster than our conscious thought. I want to give you an example of how we think we're conscious, but we're not. And these studies were done uh, and noted in the book Incognito by um, David Eagleman. And he was referencing the studies on free will. And so they were measuring neural firing, meaning how fast do, do, does a neuron network fire its impulse for action? How fast does that happen? Mapped to when do we think we actually are having a conscious thought? So they did a task where they put food in front of people and uh, they measured when a person registered mm, cake, I want that cake, versus the speed at which they started firing up their hand motion to move towards the cake. And they were different. The motor impulse to reach for the cake was firing measurably faster than the, than the thought, yum, I want the cake, which led these scientists to hypothesize that our behavior is already happening before we are aware it's happening. So oh what, God, is it ha this. what is it happening from? It's happening from a habituated pattern. And so the impulse is faster than the thought. Yes. So the impulse and which means even behavior yes. is faster than the thought. That's that's like such a huge point. And, and so so neuroplasticity works off efficiency. If you've habituated to reaching for something, that becomes an efficient neural network, which means it's going to fire faster, easier, stronger because you keep using it and it's going to make itself more efficient. So now anytime there's cake around, you may have that behavioral impulse, which is extremely efficient to start reaching for it, even before you have a desire for it. This is what, ex what helps us understand compulsive addiction. And I know better, yet I can't change my behavior. And yes, you can calm down and find inner peace, which is I think my goal in life is to find inner peace and I will use other forms of meditation to support me getting there, but I also want to be very self-directed and in order to be self-directed and feel like I have agency in my own life, sovereignty, free will, empowerment. Well, I better understand how neuroplasticity works because these things are happening before my conscious mind even has a chance. Wow. That's amazing. Um, before we talk even more so about solutions, right, and your actual work, um, could you shed some light on what, just in general for people, what causes these uh, these negative things in our unconscious? I mean, I have an idea, a childhood wounding and all kinds yeah, of things, yeah, right? Yeah. Um, but please get, elucidate on that, please. So lots and lots of things play into why we might have a negativity bias Right? It's called negativity bias, where we are predisposed to either habituating to the negative or the self-protective response or the perception that we're threatened out by the world. Right, um, And reason being is if you think about how is it that our species has stayed alive, the, the primal impulse to protect ourselves is the only reason, Myrna, you and I are talking right now and people are able to listen is because our species is predisposed to identifying threat and eradicating it for the preservation of our lives. It is a life-giving, life-affirming gift to have a self-protection negativity bias that is kept in check. That's the key. But it's not kept in check. It's so efficient and so powerful that it perpetuates itself. Therefore, if it perpetuates itself, it becomes our dominant lens. So ultimately, we don't want to vilify negativity. 
We don't want to vilify our self-protection response or make it wrong or bad to want to protect ourselves against what we perceive as threatening, but we, we want to contextualize it and reframe it so that we understand what is real threat, which is very minimal in a uh, industrialized society, very minimal threat versus our perception of threat. And if we can manage that, then we can honor and use negativity bias when it serves the preservation of our lives. And we can drop it in all the other times so we can feel sovereign, free, self-directed peace. Am I hearing you say that there is a positive aspect to what's living in our unconscious, right? Because it's a self-protection mode that has served us over millennia, right? And that's really, that's another sort of light bulb moment for me. That's really amazing. Yeah. I mean, without it, none of us would be alive. Yeah. And that goes, in, that goes into fight or flight, right? Fight, yes. flight, or freeze. And yes. so talk about that. People are, I think, generally familiar with that. So how does that play into this? So um, we live on a spectrum. Let's pretend calm, peace, ease is right here in the middle. And the spectrum runs and there's two ends of the spectrum. This end over here might be agitated, fight, flee. And this end over here might be freeze, shut down, right? But this whole spectrum represents our capacity to move along a stress response. When we're in the middle and we're resting and digesting, we feel perfectly healthy and great. And then we have a thought, we have a stress, and we go in one direction or the other. Either we agitate to protect ourselves or we shut down to protect ourselves. But we're never supposed to be stuck. We're supposed to be able to move along the spectrum from minute to minute, actually. Because if we stayed neutral, we'd never get off the couch and mobilize to do anything. If we stayed shut down, we wouldn't be functional. If we stayed agitated, we'd, we'd have hypertension and a heart attack and that'd be it. So we're designed to move along the spectrum, but we're not taught how to self-direct that movement. We are um, left to our own devices to get stuck in a space along that spectrum because we don't know how to self-direct the movement. Neuroplasticity training teaches you how to self-direct along that spectrum. So you're allowed to be agitated when the situation warrants, but you know how to come back. You're allowed to shut down if that's the proper response to save your life, but then you know how to come back. It's not about not going in these directions. It's about knowing how to stay fluid. It's not about peace, joy, and love 100% of the time because there are some times where you're going to need to run faster than you ever imagined if you'd like to live long enough to have more peace, joy, and love. So. And and all of that requires more consciousness, a higher level of awareness, the ability to recognize yes. when it's needed to step in and change something, right? Absolutely. And not right. just awareness. Awareness combined with practices and tools that work. Mm -hmm. So now share enough. more about that. Share more about the solutions. I feel I think that's enough of the unless there's anything you want to add. I feel yeah. like that's enough of sort of the background. But yeah, yeah, tell us more about the solutions and and that kind of thing. I'd love it. The solutions are neuroplasticity training. And of course, I'm biased. I'm going to tell you neurosculpting is the solution I know best. So for me, the solution is learn a neurosculpting practice, which is a combination of mental and meditational practices and a lot of information about body level practices for nerve conditioning and uh, self-regulation. But there are other great ones out there too. There's other forms of neuroplasticity trauma work training. There's, you know, EMDR, there's EFT, there's DNRS, there's Gupta. There, there's so many neural retraining programs um, some of them have their different nuances. Um, the, the thing that makes ours very special is that it is uh, very efficient, very powerful, and the practices don't take a whole lot of time. Um, and we do 
real combination of teaching around the information around the nervous system plus give practices. So that's the one I know best. Um, but awareness isn't enough. You need a practice and it has to be daily. Right, right. You know, um, the point about embodiment, that the piece that you um, mentioned when you found your solution and that you're talking about that changes the brain, that literally changes the way the mind works, is uh, the adding the embodiment piece, right? There's yes. something about it. And when you mentioned EMDR, which is the eye movement, um, what's the rest of that? Do you know <laughs> the acronym? I don't. I don't. I know. I've done EMDR and it, it can be um, useful for trauma in, in its own way, right? Mm -hmm. and, and mm -hmm. I'm sure every, all of them have limitations. Um, but but the, the the embodiment piece is seems to be the missing nugget uh, of how to literally change the brain. Yeah, and um, all well, not all. Most neuroplasticity training programs understand that when you get the motor cortex and the somatosensory cortex involved, combined with the cerebellum, which is all about movement, you amplify neuroplasticity. Again, this is a piece meditation does not have. Right. If you use the somatic senses, motion, movement, exercise, you actually amplify neuroplasticity. And if you know how and when to use it, then it is the physical body that helps the brain retrain as much as the brain helping the physical body retrain. And, and thank you. Um, there's the EMDR, eye movement, desensitization, reprocessing. Yes, that is one modality. Um, so I want to ask you about uh, a term that's kind of out there these days. It's a little controversial. It's a little strange, but the term of mind control and, you know, what that means to you. I think that um, there's all different, there's negative ways that mind control occurs and there's positive ways that we're, that it occurs, which is what we're talking about now with solutions. But um, I mean, there's even things like uh, subliminal advertising in the media that is literally influencing your mind in ways that are so subtle, you're not even aware of it. And there's, of course, all the stuff with, um, um, you know, fake news and Facebook and algorithms and, and all of that, which really um, can subtly influence our behavior. And, and specifically, they were influencing elections with uh, when they hired Cambridge Analytica, which is all outed in uh, that Netflix documentary, The Great Hack, a few years ago. But talk about mind control a little bit. My favorite subject. Um, <laughs> I don't talk about it a lot, but I'm just going to let, let me just set the stage. If you were to create your dating profile. I'm listening. Okay. <laughs> what attributes do you put on there? You get very selective with the things you say about yourself. Why? Why do you get selective about the things you say about yourself on a dating profile? So that you could influence and sway someone else's perception of you. That's mind control. That's an attempt at mind control. So when we say mind control, over here is the perception of large-scale nefarious organizational mind control. Over here is the daily nefarious, unconscious, and or benign ways we all are trying to control each other's perceptions. It is Absolutely. called social connection. And it is, it, it's a drive, it's a need of the prefrontal cortex to feel connected, accepted, seen, and heard by other. Mm -hmm. And that alone causes us to try to influence each other all the time. It's the root cause of white lies, pathological lying, manipulation, influence. Yeah. I mean, even the, you know, the greatest what was it, the Dale Carnegie book that like changed the sales world forever, how to win friends and influence people. Mind control is not new, nor is it nefarious or benign. It's what human mammals do mm -hmm. in order to get their needs met, which is to be part of a community, to be seen and heard. And that's going to cause us to either try to control our own behaviors, to perform to a certain set of expectations, 
And if we can't do that, then I better change your set of expectations of me by telling you what I think it is you need and want to hear so that you keep me in your group. So that's like the overarching. But what I would also tell you is this. If you could master the art of self-directed neuroplasticity, you would realize two things. One, the entities you think are controlling you have far less control over you than, they, than you think they do because you have self-directed neuroplasticity at your disposal. And two, if you had self-directed neuroplasticity practices, you would also realize that the response to taking sides, taking a stance, fighting a cause, all of these things which can be very noble and very necessary for societal change are also recruiting a very particular kind of brain dynamic, one in which we are midbrain dominant and frontal brain quiet. That dynamic where we are taking a stance and fighting for a cause and um, protecting our own and fighting against an adversary, that is another way to say limbic functioning. And that comes with midbrain dominance. And when we're midbrain dominant, guess what we have a harder time accessing? Frontal brain attributes, compassion, love, forgiveness, joy, problem solving, elegant solutions, language, and logic. So what I will say now might be perhaps a little bit frustrating for people to hear. It's even frustrating for me to accept this. The more you dig into a stance, even if you think it's right, in fact, of course you're gonna dig into a stance when you think it's right. No one digs into a stance if they think they're wrong. So we know our stances come from us truly believing they're right. And a good portion of the time, that is a colossal waste of time and your energy because it keeps you midbrain dominant. It keeps you perceiving more and more and more that you are disempowered. And it keeps you fighting harder and harder to reach for that empowerment. Wow. Are you saying that what we're kind of going through right now in our culture and in our lives around even COVID and vaccines is that once we start to see the world in a certain way and we become kind of embedded in that worldview, mm -hmm. the more we'll stay embedded in that worldview and unable to see another side because literally because of something going on in our brains, which is that it's very difficult to access the front brain, you said, which is where we, uh, compassion lives and, um, and, and what else? Say more about this. It's fascinating because so, this is happening right now. Yes, in the world. it's happening and it's right causing, now. And it's causing these divisions, right? It's causing kind of a divided world, unfortunately. You know, I think yes. so. So um, I can't say 100% of the time that this is what's happening, but majority us and them mentality, black and white, us and them right, wrong, those things are generally expressions of a limbic self-protective brain dynamic. Mm. Here's what they do to you, the user, the end user, to hold and maintain those things. You are disabling the front of the brain to a certain capacity, which means you are not applying nearly the amount of logic you think you are. I can promise you that. Um, you are not seeing all the solutions that you think you could. You are not seeing any gray zone whatsoever. You're missing critical information. You are keeping yourselves, ourselves, me, at a disadvantage. And that's just what you're doing to your perceptions. What you're doing to your body is 10 times worse. You are keeping stress hormones elevated. You are habituating even more strongly to your negativity bias. 
you are compromising your gut health. You are elevating inflammation. You are not digesting your food and absorbing nutrients to your capacity. And you are absolutely causing neurodegenerative processes to start. It's a mess. It's a waste of time. It's a mess. But it's our natural default. Because we remember we said earlier, as humans, we have negativity bias to keep us alive. So the minute that momentum starts, we get stuck in it. How do you fix that? How do you get out of it? You have to learn neuroplastically how to engage the prefrontal cortex. There are mechanisms to do so. There's physical processes. There are mental exercises to do it. Once you start engaging prefrontal activity, when you recruit focused attention in the front of the brain, it shows a minimizing effect on all of those midbrain processes and attributes associated with frontal brain activity are things like joy, love, compassion, solutions, out-of-the-box thinking, innovation, creativity, um, and, and the concept of a larger, more inclusive we. Not an us and them. It's a very fine line between what is us and them and what is we. Inclusivity at a larger degree is prefrontally uh, supported. Inclusivity at an exclusive expense, elitist, small we, us, that's midbrain. And even though they're similar concepts, they show up differently in our physiology. They show up differently in our worldview. And I know her many voices is 1000% about creating the we of the women who have no voice. That cannot be done from a limbic, a limbic place. That has to be done from a prefrontal place. So it's at the core of her many voices mission is to understand that happens when you are prefrontally predisposed. So um, maybe you're doing this already. Um, I see. A, I see a need to um, even position your services and what you are teaching to the broader public in general right now because of the state of the world. Um, because of we're we're more. Div- you know, things are more divisive than ever in my lifetime, frankly, right? Mm-hmm. And so um, I think there's a real need for this kind of information um, on a really broad scale um, globally, not even just in the U.S., right? So um, have you positioned it that way or thought about that as it applies to what's happening right now today? Yes. I mean, that is certainly is my mission is to make neurosculpting dinner table practices, right? To make, to give it to every home, to, to get it to people who need it. Because empowerment starts on the inside of your individual nervous system, period. You, and I'm saying this to you, right? The whoever is listening to me right now, as much as I'm saying it to you, I'm saying it to myself. You are the most powerful agent of change in your life, in your lifetime. It is you. And it is you governing your own nervous system with your own intention that holds the keys to the kingdom. When you do that, that is when you affect others around you more effortlessly, more organically, more authentically, without the need to fight or prove you right and them wrong or to substantiate your argument with 10,000 articles, none of that is necessary if you have made the change first inside yourself because it is absolutely non-negotiable when you are the change. This is why I can teach neurosculpting. This is why I can walk into a room of you know, police officers who I train or even scientists or people who know far more than I do about neuroscience and hold my own because my change is irrefutable because it happened inside me. 
I love this. You're telling us how to get to the point where each and every individual can be the kind of person to one of those people. I mean, I think of it as Christ consciousness, even where you walk into the room and you're just so deeply balanced, rooted, rooted, grounded, content. Uh, don't get upset. You know, one of those, it's like a life changing thing where you become one of those people, right? I mean, think about this. If you could get so regulated, self-directed, regulated in yourself where nothing is truly a threat unless someone's holding a knife to your throat, right? Truly, someone else's opinion is not a threat. If you're that regulated and you could walk into a room full of people who think completely differently from you and you could walk in regulated, in compassion and in love, that's a game changer. That's a different conversation. That's a different outcome. This is how people have converted KKK members to, to, to leave the brotherhood. This is, this is how, you know, people have converted hate groups to change their ways. It's because they were regulated enough in themselves to walk in without that limbic response and hold a prefrontal space of compassion to see someone else perhaps that person is seen for the very first time and feels it. And now their Ooh. arguments don't need to be so heavy either. That's a whole nother, a whole nother thing being seen. It's a whole we, other thing. in general, are not seen. That's what and the divisive arguments are about right now. See me, see me, see me. And the other side saying, well, if I see you, that means... I must be wrong. So seeing you negates me being seen. That's all this is. Wow. And it doesn't matter what you call the argument. You could call it the Cold War. You could call it COVID. You could call it oil versus greenhouse effect. You could call it whatever you want. It's about see me and the threat of me actually seeing you means I'm negated. And that only comes from dysregulation. But when you are regulated, you see yourself, you feel whole, you don't need anyone else to see you. You just show up and they can feel that. I feel that from you every time I see you. And I, I had, absolutely. And I have, well, and Alicia too, by the way, and I have a, um, a suspicion that when, you know, having gone through 30 years of these extreme seizures and serious debilitating issues, um, and then I also was at Nurture, uh, I don't know, when was that, a year ago? And you, you were dancing, remember? That's right, that's right. And, um, and I see, yeah, there's so much joy in you as well. I, I love it. You're an embodiment of these practices. I really, really want you well, to know that. you know... I Someone else said this to me the other day. She was a child of uh, Middle Eastern trauma. And she said, I feel bad for the people who never went through war because they're so afraid of life. And that made so much sense to me because I thought I have literally flatlined on multiple occasions. I, I really was not coming back. And that does something to you. It does one of two things. It either creates excessive fear in your life of it happening again, or it makes you have the felt sense that there is no tomorrow. And if there's no tomorrow, then how much can I love today? And I don't want to be doom and gloom because I don't view it as doom and gloom. I view it as fuel. But I'm going to tell you, you don't have tomorrow. I don't care who you are, what research you have, or how much clout you have in the world. You don't have tomorrow. You're lucky if you get it. Love today. That's it. Yeah. That's yeah. it. That's the message of a lot of people who've gone through, as you mentioned, flatlining. People who've gone through near-death experiences, their message is exactly that, right? Life is it's too damn short for this ridiculous arguing. Mammals with the same nervous system, the same brain, arguing with each other about who's got the answers to the universe when we could be loving and yeah. expanding and getting to our deathbed, looking back, nobody cares how many arguments they won. Nobody. 
Absolutely. They only care that they left their loved ones with a sense of being loved. Yeah. And then, and I know Anita Morjani is someone who had a near-death experience. And one of her, her additional message is in addition to living in the present and don't counting on tomorrow. And another message she has is that you have to do, do what you love, be authentic, be who you are. Don't live your life for other people, live it for who you are essentially. And that sounds easier than it is I think, in, in the real world. Yeah. Also being in the present, right? I have a wonderful son who is, um, his autism and he's actually right here. Sometimes I'm muting myself and I'm talking to him in the background because <laughs> it's a snow day and he's working online. Right. Anyway, um, talk about living in the present is the biggest gift because I am living in the present all the time because that's how he lives. It's he such brings a his genius to you. So, totally. It's such a blessing. Yes. It's really cool. Wow. Um, yeah. So I, before we go to any questions and kind of start to wrap up, we have about 10 more minutes. I wanted to ask you about your book, New Beliefs, New Brain. Mm -hmm. If you could share about that, it's free. The subtitle is Free Yourself from Stress and Fear. Yes. New Beliefs, New Brain. So that was my first book. And I was so blessed to have Dr. David Perlmutter write the forward to that book. He is one of my all-time favorite teachers of life. Um, and that book is really an entry point for people who want to understand a little bit more about the nervous system and neuroplasticity. And it's got some case studies and practices. And it speaks a lot to trauma and how to overcome it. Um, and then I have a bunch of books after that that take that thread and run deeper into more of the exploratory neuroscience behind some of the practices and all sorts of rich resources in, in the books. And that's a great entry point. And Especially, and if people like Audible, I have a bunch of books on Audible because um, sometimes it's just nice to listen and, and, you know, people prefer that. But those books are great entry points. And, um, but what's even better is learning. And that's my specialty. And so that's what I always love to do is get involved with my students. And we have online courses, they're self-paced and we have live courses. And, and really that's where the rubber meets the road. You want to make the changes. You, you learn the principles and the practices and then you do them. That's great. You also have a children's book, right? I do. It's called the monster under your bed is just a story in your head. So and true. this one teaches neuro literacy to children. Um, it teaches children how to recognize what's going on with their thoughts versus their experience, their felt sense of fear, teaches them how to use practices to regulate themselves and to add um, self-directed perception to, uh, to their life. So they feel more empowered at a younger, younger age. Mm -hmm. And that one is um, actually it's not just for kids. It's for grownups too. I mean, who doesn't love a good kid story that teaches you about your brain. Well, that's just what I was thinking is that, uh, that, that it's relevant for all of us, right? That monster under your bed, whatever you're worried about, it's just a story in your head. Absolutely. Absolutely. And caveat, that's not to minimize the trauma any of you have experienced or, or any of my trauma. Trauma, the things that caused the trauma, those really happened. Those are not to be erased or minimized. It is the relationship we choose to have with that event that makes or breaks us. And that's what I mean by it's just a story in your head, not to minimize some terrible thing that might have happened to you, but to give you the empowerment that you can turn that event into something that lives in the past. And, you know, I also love the, um, I'm you might be familiar with the newer documentary by Gabor, Dr. Gabor Mate called The Wisdom of Trauma. Mm -hmm. It's just really an incredible um, look at, it's a different way of looking at trauma, mm -hmm. um, at, at not just a, a teacher, but it's, it's really an incredible look at trauma. Yes. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with that. Uh, there, I think there, I'm not familiar with that. I haven't watched it yet, but there was a, a question. What can people do right now? Mm -hmm. Um, couple things. Number one, um, don't expect to be extra loving if you don't sleep well at night. <laughs> so rule number one, work on your sleep patterns and get them regulated. Try to sleep at night, be awake during the day. Um, another tip people can do is 
when you are hijacked by stress, when you're in divisive arguments online or in person, when you're shut down, if you could shake your body very vigorously for just a few moments, you can actually interrupt that whole process and keep it from gaining momentum. So sleep, shaking, and then a meditation practice. And even if you don't have one, that could be a five-minute walk around your neighborhood while you are listening to some beautiful music or just being quiet. But these are uh, tools for life. They're simple. They're free. You can do them. That's great. Here's another question. For someone with alcohol and food addiction or habits, what is one of the first things we can do in this neuroplasticity work to overcome it? Awareness is not enough. Correct. Awareness is not enough. And, and addiction is very real and very efficient and very powerful. Um, I do have a, an audible program called Neurosculpting for uh, Habits, Breaking Habits. And that program actually has some practices in there that I have used with my clients who have very strong addictions. So I've dealt with uh, opioid addiction and heroin addiction and alcohol and sexual addiction in my private practice. And so some of those meditations in that audible program are directly for helping your dopamine entrainment separate itself from the substance. Um, so I think that could be real supportive. Um, that's on audible. That is awesome. That sounds good. Um, one more comment. Um, oh, yeah. Here's just some more information about neuroscopy. Yes. Yeah, that Audible program that you just mentioned, the step-by-step -step program, that one's pretty robust. It addresses neuroplasticity practices for different aspects of life, relationship, finances, stress, trauma. Um, so that one on Audible is, is, is a, a great entry point as well. I wanted to ask you, and we're bringing Alicia Fall back in, and I uh, wanted to ask you, my last question for you, Lisa, really is related to Her Many Voices. How did you become involved in the, in the first place? And maybe it was through the Refugee Ambassador Program? It was actually before that. Um, so, you know, I, I got the honor of watching Alicia create it. I, I got to see Alicia have her mission and her purpose and watched her birth it powerfully into the world. And um, the, first tr uh, the first time she went to Haiti um, and experienced so much, she came back and she said, who helped the helpers? Who helps the relief workers? And so we actually did some sessions to give the relief mm -hmm. workers some tools so that they could stay resilient enough to do that kind of work. And then from there, as she was um, getting more and more uh, out there in the world, that's when we came up with the ambassador program. Yeah. Wonderful. Alicia, welcome back. Thank you. It's been wonderful <laughs> listening. I've been uh, smiling, shaking my head, laughing, having all sorts of memories. So, I know, get Lisa, so passionate. What's that? I get so passionate and fired you up. You get so passionate. That's what, you know, one of the things, one of the many, many reasons why I absolutely fell in love with who you are. And I thought, okay, this is my bud, man. Yes. I've, I've got, here's somebody who's part of my peaks. Um, what did you say, 18 years ago? Yes, oh my God. It's because of that passion. And you have been one of the few people that in my life who truly have moved your passions to purpose mm. for the betterment of others, mm. as well as yourself. Mm. You that's know, my, you that on a that's regular my hope. Basis. Thank you've you. done it on a regular basis. And, um, and you've truly, it's helped me in keeping that grounding. Um, it was about, it's close to three years now, maybe two and a half, three years ago. I woke up one morning and I had been dragging for a couple of weeks. And I woke up one morning and I thought, okay, I need some caffeine in me or something. Mm. And I went into the kitchen and I had the coffee grounds in one hand and the French press in the other. And suddenly I was out. I collapsed yeah. yeah, and I ended up, I ended up with a nice concussion and I ended up breaking mm -hmm. my back. And what I didn't realize also is that I was out for 90 minutes when we, when we found out the last call I had made and the next call I made. Mm -hmm. And, um, and when I went to the hospital, when I got to the ER, they told me that it was the vasovagal syncope. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It'll get you. And I'm like, <laughs> Lisa, <laughs> you know, that immediate 
oh my God, yeah. All right, that's yeah. what she was talking about for those 30 years. This yeah. is what she was going through. Yeah, you know? it's it's it was powerful. And of course, you know, you have always dealt with a large amount of stress just in the work that you do in the world and the things you've overcome in your own life that it's not surprising that at some point your nervous system is going to get overloaded. And that's mm -hmm. what that response is. It's an overwhelming overload. And it's it's trying to hit the reset button. Yeah. We have one yeah. more question. I'd love to squeeze yes. in one more question here. I know we're really wrapping up with our last yeah. few minutes, but someone with mental illness diagnosis can see life differently. Is your program any different in its application to deal with that population? You know, Tamara, that's a great question. Um, I, I'll, I'll caveat and say I'm not a therapist. I'm not a counselor. We do have therapists on staff, and we do have a number of practitioners who are dual licensed in neurosculpting and therapy. And in those cases, they can speak very specifically to diagnoses. What I will say is when I get clients who have diagnoses, I absolutely make sure that before I do neurosculpting with them, that they inform their doctors and their therapists. And if their doctors or therapists have an issue and think it's not a good place to be, I'm going to back up. Um, I haven't really experienced a lot of pushback. You know, we're very transparent with their caregivers. And in fact, most of them say this is this is helping as an adjunct to their therapy. So I can't really speak to the diagnosis part of it. Um, other than that, yeah. Thank you. But so I, I want to just jump in quickly and say, you have your advisory board, right? Or not advisory, your board. Yeah. There, there are some powerful women on that board. Yes, we, we just put the board together this year and we have um, a fantastic MD who's also very much versed in alternative medicine. And we have um, a mental wellness uh, PhD at the Anschutz Medical Center who's in charge of public mental health um, and research. And then we have a neuroscientist who also deals with behavioral and somatic approaches. So the board, it's, it's a solid board and it's all empowered women, which is also really, really cool. That's wonderful. I'm, I'm sorry we have to wrap up. I know we always hate to go great. here. Um, please notice the link below, the bit.ly link for donating to Her Many Voices. We certainly appreciate it. I know that many of you know how important this work is in the world. Um, and um, Alicia, do you want to speak a little bit about what we have coming up for um, our February event, which is February 10th? Yeah, so last month we were trying to get Jessica Shu uh, on from uh, Jessica's Working Out of Haiti. She's been down there for the last 20 years. Um, she, Lisa, is another New Yorker. Um, but <laughs> unfortunately, because we had some tech issues with, with Haiti, we weren't able to get Jess on last month. So she's going to be joining us again this, uh, this coming month. And uh, Jess's background is uh, she's into anthropology. And she's been working in Haiti, like I said, for the last 20 years. She's got that inside take on what is going on with the country, how people are dealing and speaking about trauma and PTSD and all of those kind of things. I don't know if you're aware, Haiti just had another earthquake just yesterday morning. Oh my God. So between earthquake after earthquake, the assassination of their president, the, the gangs that are running the country, um, the insight that Jess can bring to what's going on in the country um, is, is, is powerful. It really is. So she'll be back with us on the 10th of February. Hopefully we'll have, you know, stellar, uh, stellar uh, tech moments here and not have any more issues. Um, so please join us on that date. And um, Lise, thanks again for being here today. Thank, Thank you. So good to be here. Thank you so much, Lisa. And thank you, Alicia, for everything you do as well. Thank you, Myrna. Thank you so much.